0: Welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Jan Orman. In this podcast series, we've invited people we know and admire to tell
1: you their stories.
0: My name's Paula Cottervich.
1: So my name is Craig Sample. Evie Rader.
0: Molly Shorthouse. My name's
1: Percy Knight. I was a career detective in the New South Wales Police Force. I identify as a trans woman.
0: I am a remote doctor in East Arnhem Land. These are people who may not have made the headlines, but whose stories are just as worthy of your attention as those you hear about in the media. Living
1: with cancer. I was struggling with PTSD for eight or nine years. I just had a lot of fear.
0: I was well and truly burnt out. These are people who have flourished and met life's challenges while managing their social
1: and emotional well-being. Uh, my career now as a mental health advocate and educator. I led a team that negotiated a $22 million native title. Definitely taught me in my
0: life a lot of persistence and give me a lot of strength. We're hoping you'll find something in these stories to inspire you, whatever your situation right now. This is the second part of Craig Semple's story. If you've heard the first part, you know that he had some pretty traumatic experiences leading to some quite serious mental health consequences. In this second part of his story, Craig talks about how he got better. He found lots of ways to overcome that trauma and he did turn a breakdown into a breakthrough.
1: So basically what happened was that I was struggling with PTSD for eight or nine years, but I managed to cope with it. In some respects, I was quite dysfunctional, but in in other ways, the PTSD, my coping strategies actually made me a highly effective detective in the police force at that time. It motivated me. But because I was maintaining massively high levels of stress for those long periods of time, I wasn't aware that you know, apart from the adrenaline that I loved, I was also getting a lot of cortisol pumped through my system for for a long period of time, and and basically that cortisol and, uh, and all that lack of sleep burnt me out. So instead of just having one mental illness, which was PTSD, I then had a second one, which is major depressive disorder. And, and that's one I had no answer for. That brought me to my knees. Um, and so over a period of time, I was, I was put uh, into treatment with a psychiatrist for managing medication. So I was put on antidepressants and antipsychotics and alpha blockers and all sorts of other stuff. I was put in touch with another psychologist um, who was really good as well. So a psychiatrist looked after the medication, some therapy. The psychologist looked after a lot of talking therapy and mindfulness and those sort of things. I was put through three months of treatment at Westmead Trauma Clinic. So there was a lot of things that took place there. But basically for the next three years, I lived on this horrible rollercoaster of massively high anxiety for the PTSD and then I would sort of break. And go into a really deep pit of depression for a long period of time, so it was a really difficult way to to live my life, and um, and so you know I had a big toll on on the people around me. Um, you know, it's so important to have good support around you when when you've got mental health problems, and you know that support's not going to be there unless the people that are doing the support uh, are aware what to do uh, if they're if they've got their head around. Um, what, what the illness is like to live with, so that it creates a little bit of empathy and understanding. Um, so there probably wasn't enough of that within my home environment. But uh, on top of that, after three years of battling these two illnesses, um, my marriage broke down for the first time. Um, so that, that that was a bit of a pivotal point. So for those three years that, that I'd been since discharged from the police force, um, I had... Uh, Right from the start, had a battle with suicidal ideation, okay, and it scared the hell out of me. The first time I had suicidal thoughts was in the first couple of months after my my breakdown, which I now call a breakthrough, but then it was a breakdown. And those suicidal thoughts scared the hell out of me because, as a detective, I had to actually go and investigate suicides. So for those 25 years, you don't keep a tally, but I would have investigated over 50 suicides over that period of time. Most of them were blokes. So I battled this suicidation for for three years. And after my marriage broke down, got to a point uh, where I ended up acting on those thoughts. And I ended up in hospital, in an emergency room in in a hospital. But, you know, in hindsight, I look back and my advice to people now if you get to that point, you definitely got to reach out and tell someone responsible that you're actually thinking about killing yourself. It's massively important. I look back now and I think if I could just have got myself through the next day, things might have been a lot different, okay? But obviously, I'm pretty lucky because I'm still here talking about it. So basically, how did things end up in such a bad state? Like, you know, I was a high-achieving, fearless, larger-than-life detective in the police force and I ended up in such a state that I no longer wanted to live anymore. Basically, it came down to two reasons why that happened. First one, I didn't get help when I should have. You know, I spoke to my clinician at the trauma clinic at Westmead, and I said, if I'd actually got help way back on a first half of my nightmares before all the other stuff started to creep in, would have made a difference. And she said, Craig, if you actually got onto it, then we could have had all this dealt with with five one-hour sessions and we would have maintained contact with you over a period of time. You'd still be in the, in the job that you loved. Who knows what, would, what the situation would be, your family, all that sort of stuff. But as a result of not getting it when well, I should have, now had over 250 hours of clinical appointments Okay, through, through my treatment. And that's a big difference five one-hour sessions or 250, you know, plus all the, all the, the impact that it's had on, on my life and my, and my family as well. But probably the main reason I ended up in that state as well was the fact that those coping strategies I put into place, they were good in the short to medium term, but in the long run they were not sustainable and they left me a really broken man. So what have i learnt from that, basically, you know, you can run as hard and as fast from developing mental health problems as much as you like the harder you run and the further you run, the harder you get pulled down in the end. So it's a massively important thing. So, you know, for me, um, main message is, you know, I've done some pretty heroic stuff in the police force in in my career, Um, but actually putting my hand up and asking for help and going through all the the treatment and recovery has taken so much more courage than any of that tactical stuff I used to do in the police force. So it's a really, really important message is that putting your hand up and asking for help is not a sign of weakness. It is, in fact, a sign of strength and courage. So, uh, so I ended up in that situation where where I found myself in an emergency room at a hospital, and um, and I remember I came home. My son drove me home, my drove me home. My eldest son, and uh, and I remember I while I was in the emergency room with the machines going and everything, I remember looking at him and I said, "Mate, this will never happen again," and I made a pact with him. That it wouldn't but also made a pact with myself that i was going to find some way through this so i remember i i went home and for that whole whole week after i got out of hospital um i, I sat at home in in quiet reflection and i was left alone in the in the lounge room to process everything that had happened and basically what i did and it's probably my police background that sort of tapped me into this was that i got out a notepad and a pen and I, I worked through and wrote down everything that I thought had led me to be in this position, Okay, everything. And some of the things I, I looked at um, were my commitment to some of the strategies that I'd been taught through those 250 hours of clinical appointments. You know, I'd learnt things like cognitive based based therapy, challenging negative thinking. Um, I'd learnt mindfulness. I had learn a whole range of different strategies and and I wrote them all down in a list and that list included exercise at the top of it mindfulness um, it, it, it included um, engaging pleasurable activities a whole range of other ones and then I added to them as, as I went along as well and i looked at the list of strategies and i thought have i given 100 commitment to these things that have been taught and the honest answer was no and and i had to be honest because it was look at the end of the day some of the strategies like you know things like exercise um and mindfulness you know th- with the depression that i experienced at that over those years I, I just lacked the motivation and energy to, to do a lot of this stuff um but there was other things like gratitude that I had on the list that I just always had blown off as warm fuzzy hippie stuff that i really couldn't see working for a big bloke like me um so so i I wrote down all these strategies and i thought well you know this is crunch time you need to commit so i came up with my own recovery game plan during that week and that was massively important and too often uh, unfortunately people go in to get help for mental health problems and they just keep going in for their appointments every week and regurgitating all the stuff that's happened in the past and all the horrible stuff that's happened to them that week. But at some point, you have got to draw a line in the sand and come up some sort of way forward. So for me, it was sort of my game plan and and these were my strategies. And for each of them, what I did was write down an action for how I was going to put these things into my life from this moment on. And what was really, really important was making sure that the actions that I – that I, I decided on were achievable. They are only small, okay? So, for instance, for exercise, my action for exercise was I just had to get my surfboard and go out in the water for 10 minutes every day, regardless of my mood or the conditions. You know, I've been a passionate surfer for most of my life and for the three years that I was depressed, I could find no enjoyment in it, so I didn't do it. So that was my... My game plan, my action for exercise is simply just to spend 10 minutes in the water. And it's amazing that through commitment to action, by doing this every day, by getting out, and the hard part is actually getting the surfboard, putting it in the car, and turning the, the ignition. That's the hardest part. Then getting down the water, and the more that I did it, um, I just started to spend more time out in the water every time I went down. So 10 minutes actually started turning in half an hour to an hour. Um, I started catching waves, started to enjoy it again. I sort of started to get socially reconnected to some small degree. You know, even up on the North Coast there, as much as you love to go and find a surf spot where you can have it all to yourself, it's really rare. And so you find I'd find myself talking to blokes out in the surf. I'd become a recluse while I was, while I was unwell. Um, so I was actually getting out again. And then because of that commitment action with my exercise, I started to get a lot more involved in it and I started going to the gym again. Uh, for the first time in three years I started you know going doing weight training which I'd I'd stopped doing when I left the police force Um, and so you know that doing all that exercise you know I didn't really understand the 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 medical reasons why it was helping me at the time I know now you know all you know that that exercise um, was it's getting me out of the house It was burning off all the stress chemicals that it was flooding my system, all the cortisol and adrenaline, but it was giving me release of endorphins as well, which is great for your mood. Um, And so the the benefits of that were fantastic. Mindfulness, one of the other strategies I had, my action for that was um, I've been taught a a mindfulness strategy called grounding. So you know, mindfulness, there's so many strategies out there you can learn, and it's not a one-size-fits-all, so you've got to try a few things and you pick the one that fits for you. So for me, what fitted because I'm pretty practical, was something called grounding where you you identify five five things you can see, five things you can hear, five things you can feel against your body and then really interrogate the detail. And then four things, three all the way through to zero. And the first time that was ever tried with me, it it was amazing. It was like I had this little bubble around me that I didn't want anyone to pop because it really calmed me down. Because what grounding I found was doing to me was helping me plug into the world around me and really connect with it but also shut down a lot of the ruminating negative thinking that was you know, all the chatter that was going on in my head. And it gave my, my mind a little bit of time out, which is really important when you have a brain injury, like basically I did. So I thought to myself that week while I was sitting there coming up with my game plan, well, that really works so well for me. How can I expand on that? So, so my strategy for that, my, my action, was I, I like to write. So I decided a few days a week I would take my laptop, up in the rainforest or down the beach or somewhere else and I'd sit there and write little stories about the things I could see, hear and feel against my body and I could get lost for three or four hours doing that and, and for those three or four hours, I was totally plugged in the world around me, um, it shut down all the negative chatter that was going on in my mind. It was giving me my mind time out to recover, which is an amazing thing. And I, I ended up, I put together quite a few stories there. They're sitting somewhere on my laptop and I call it word art. basically what it was so that was a massive uh, strategy for me over that period of time commitment to that on a regular basis was really really quite powerful so for for cognitive behavior therapy that strategy my action with that was i had thought challenging sheets i've been taught to use and uh and i cited i always made excuses whenever my thinking had had brought me uh, undone uh with my mood and and the and the way that i was feeling i I always said, I'll do one of those thought-challenging sheets when I get home, and then I wouldn't do it. So my action for for CBT was to print up a whole stack of these thought-challenging sheets and to put up two folders, and I put a stack of these sheets in in a folder in my car, and I put a stack next to my bed in my bedroom. And so that way, no matter where I was, whenever some negative thinking occurred uh, that was bringing me um, bringing me down. I would immediately pull out a thought challenging sheet and work through it. So it was all the evidence for that thought, all the evidence against. Um, and and it basically, over a period of months of doing this all the time, at the point where I was having this negative thinking, I sort of retrained my brain to be able to pick up on it on the negative thoughts when they started the first impact. Like I was creating new, new neural pathways with this behaviour, and and so it became second nature over a period of time. So that commitment to action, doing it all the time, it really did work. Um, but one of the other things that ran off that, when I, when I was ta- thinking about my strategies for CBT that week after I got out of hospital, I actually started looking at how I, was, how I could challenge my whole situation as well. I, I realised that when I look back for those three years that I'd been out of the police force, I'd looked at my whole situation with negativity, like it was all... You know, I suffer from PTSD and I suffer from depression. Every time someone asked me why I wasn't at work, I thought to myself, I'm going to change that around. I thought, well, I can't really say that I don't have PTSD and depression because I'm still really unwell. So I just thought, well, how about you just say from now on that you live with PTSD and live with depression? So saying I suffer with PTC and depression, every time that word suffer was used, it was reinforcing a really negative message in my mind that I was a victim of these illnesses, which meant they had control over me. So so basically by saying that I live with these illnesses, it meant that I had reached some agreement with them, that we coexisted, which meant that I was now no longer their victim, which meant they didn't have control over me anymore. And basically the power in that was more about acceptance so i'd been fighting my my diagnosis for three years but by actually coming to this acceptance instead of fighting the symptoms i could actually start working with them and that was a that was a really big turning point in my whole overall outlook with with my whole recovery but then i looked at that in a little bit further i sort of once i started thinking along those lines i thought you've looked at this whole last three years of your life with a sense of loss you know i've lost three years of my life I've lost my career, I've lost my identity as a detective in the police force, which was a massive thing to lose. It's like your soul is your identity. And so it was a big thing to, to deal with. And, you know, I'd, I'd lost friendships and lost my health, lost my marriage. It's all this negative stuff, loss, loss, loss. I thought I've got to find some way to turn all that negative into positive and all that loss into gain. And so my strategy for that, my action, was to reach out to the Black Dog Institute and I typed up a bit of a story and I had this proposal that, because I love riding motorbikes, that I would ride my motorbike around Australia and raise some money for research. I thought that would be a good way to turn negative into positive. And I was put in contact with someone here at the at the Black Dog Institute, and and they said, um, Craig, we've uh, we've probably got a better idea for you. We've we've got a an initiative where we've got people with lived experience of mental illness to go out and share their stories in high schools and community groups to raise awareness and reduce stigma. Do you want to have a go at that? And I said, okay, you know, I'm only like two months out of hospital, but I'll have a crack. So I went to a one-day facilitator's workshop uh, in Coffs Harbour uh, and Shannon came up and and, and ran that, that that workshop for us and there was 10 of us, lived experience, and uh, I was the only bloke. There was nine women in the, in the room. And then at the end of it, I was given a USB PowerPoint Uh, presentation and sent away and then i got a phone call to go and do my first school presentation 170 high school kids up and in in my local high school where my kids went to school and so i remember turning up i remember turning up to the school and and parking my car in the teacher's car park and i was so terrified of getting out and and presenting to these these 170 high school kids you know one one of my children was going to be in in one of the groups and I think I was just so scared. One of the reasons was that that for the first time I was going to be opening up about some vulnerabilities and things that happened that I hadn't spoken about publicly before, and I wasn't sure that I was actually going to be able to get through it. You know, one, one of the things we teach with, um, with a lot of our programs with Black Dog is about resilience. And one of the, the, the key definitions is, you know, resilience is our ability to face the challenges we face in our life. We overcome them and we come out stronger on the other side and so you know I, I sort of was in that car park and i thought craig why did you put your hand up to do this like i was so close to going home pulling out why'd you put your hand up to do this get out of the car get in there plug in that usb and just get started and i went in there and you know there was a big group of these kids and I got through that that hour presentation and it wasn't polished and I was really nervous and I may have even choked up a couple of times I can't remember because it all went in a blur but the most amazing thing happened at the end of it it was like I was packing up all my stuff and there was a, I looked up and there was this lineup of a dozen or so teenagers want to have, come and have a chat and I thought what's going on here and you know the first one young man wouldn't have a clue how old he was just mid-teens He'd been diagnosed with depression. You know, 75% of these illnesses happened before the age of 25, and it's just like there's a lot of kids out there in it. And, hurt. and, um, and this, this young man came up and just wanted to share his experience, what it's like for him living with depression. Next one, young lady, anxiety, same thing. Further down the line, uh, there was another young man who had lost a parent to suicide many years before. And that kid came up and said, you know, Craig, for the first time, I've actually understood what my parent went through and I've got such a better understanding, it's given me some peace. So all these kids, they could see this big bloke getting up there and opening up and sharing, and and they thought, he's going to get it. He's going to get what I'm actually going through. So there was a connection. And I remember walking out of that school that day and I thought to myself, you know... You set out to – this why you got involved in this was to turn a negative and a positive. I think you just started on that road. So I felt a lot stronger than I did before I went in. And then over a period of time, I started doing more and more of these community talks for the Black Dog Institute and, and then started putting a few tours together where i go out in the whole central west area of New South Wales for one example and I'd spend a week out there visiting schools and community groups and I'd do it on my motorbike so I had that – pleasure as well and sometimes i'd take motorbike friends with me on these these trips and and i think it was about um about the first year about the 12 month period when i first started doing this that that i realized that i'd reached a turning point in my recovery and it wasn't some light bulb moment where i just go oh wow suddenly i feel fantastic it was just simply for the first time in so many years probably 10 years i could actually honestly say that i was having more good days than bad days and that was, a, that was an achievement I grabbed hold of with both hands and ran with it. And it didn't happen just because of some sort of positive affirmation. It had happened because of some hard work. Like I really, my, all the commitment to my different strategies from a game plan, I, I really worked hard at them. But mainly getting out and, and doing what I was doing for Black Dog was one of the most critical aspects of that recovery. And that was happening because, firstly, I was challenging myself I was, and, and the challenge was where I was, had to be really ma- be very self-aware that I wasn't challenging too much but I was pushing myself a little bit all the time so that I was continually getting some growth I was um, learning new skills while I was getting out and talking to all these people all over the countryside um, I was socially reconnecting again I was meeting hundreds, literally thousands of people doing the, the work that I was doing um, I was turning all that loss into gain which is what I set out to do probably one of the, you know, the biggest things was that I was doing as a volunteer. Um, you know, I'm so so convinced in the benefits of giving and, and volunteering and what it's done for me in my recovery. You know, I've done research in the studies that have been done in various parts of the world. And, you know, the people who give themselves and volunteer, and, um, you know, they physically live longer than people who don't. Less, less incidents of chronic illness and disease and their mental health is far above those who, who, who don't give it themselves. So it's not a bad incentive to do nice things for people. But but for me, it was more about also I was doing it as a volunteer, but it gave me a sense of purpose again. You know, when I was in the police force, I had an amazing sense of purpose. Obviously, it was huge. Then when I was out of the police force, that loss of identity, I had no purpose at all anymore. I felt quite worthless. But getting out and doing this stuff with Black Dog... Um, and doing it unpaid, it, it, it fulfilled that sense of purpose that we all need. For me, it was critical and it was a massive part of my, uh, my recovery is, is actually doing that. But part of it as well was I was actually, even though I'd lost one identity as a cop, I was creating a new identity for myself as a mental health advocate and that's an important thing too. So I got to this point where I was, I'd reached that turning point in my recovery and then, you know, success propagates success. And it's basically went from one strength to another, and over a period of uh, I don't know the first couple of years as a volunteer, I probably got around, and spoke to um, three or four thousand people around the country, and um, and then I started doing some volunteer work with Police Legacy. We've got a program called Backup for Life, where there's a whole range of strategies, but it's mainly for retired police, those who have medically retired, but also retired for other reasons that. You know, we, we try to bring them back into the police family a little bit and reconnect them and, and try to give them some opportunities to transition into other careers. Uh, you know, work is one of the best ways people can actually recover from mental illness and there's a lot of damaged cops out there. And, um, and one of the other things we've got going for it is a mentoring program. So I came on in, in the, the very start of the program as a as a mentor, and my job as a mentor and a, and a coach is is quite simply to be engaged with police that are transitioning out of the police force with mental health problems and and help them transition through that process because I've walked it. I know I know the pitfalls, I know the, the processes, and I can sort of help them uh, walk through that 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 journey. Um, a little easier and and the main thing that i can provide and so is with the other mentors that are part of this program is that we we actually the biggest gift we can give these people is hope because i hope that they can see me and say wow you know this bloke was where i am now and look where he is now but but through this whole process as well some of the other strategies apart from the giving and the and the, and the cbt and the exercise and the mindfulness one of the last ones I'll talk about gratitude and gratitude is one of those strategies where I blew it off as a warm fuzzy thing at the start and I was sort of sorry I did but my, my eyes were first opened up to gratitude when I did the one day workshop uh, for the Black Dog Institute back when I was only a month or so out of hospital and it was that the 10 of us were in that room and at the end of the day Shannon said want everyone here to say one thing they're grateful for for having their mental illness and i actually just got out of hospital i'm thinking what are you talking about how on earth can i be possibly grateful for anything that i've gone through over the last few years so it's probably lucky she didn't pick me to go first but she went around the table and um and i and the best thing i did was listen and i listened to what all these women had to say that i'm grateful for and by the time it got to me I got it just in time and I said you know Shannon I'm grateful for having a mentor on us because it's given me an opportunity to reconnect and rebuild a relationship with my three sons bang you know that's something someone just opened up my eyes up to something i hadn't even previously considered because when I was in the police force um, my dad my, my kids got the the bad end of me they got the angry irritable heavy drinking workaholic um, but when I was out of the police force I was making their lunches for school I was taking them to school playing sport with them doing heaps of stuff where we re- rebuild a relationship now that's now unbreakable my grateful for illness for that yes absolutely but look I, I, I wouldn't never want to go and live through what I've lived through now but I am grateful for, on a, on a more than a dozen reasons now for having a mental illness you know. Like a lot of other people, I pick up the newspapers and I watch the news and I see what the cops are turning up to every day. And I think, as much as I love my career, I'm actually really grateful for my mental illness that I don't have to go and pick up the pieces anymore. Thankful for that. Um, Probably the biggest thing I'm grateful for for that whole experience is it's just simply made me a better person. You know, like I said before, when I was, you know, particularly those last few years in the police force, I wasn't the nicest person to live with. Heavy drinker, angry all the time, big ego, all that sort of stuff. One thing depression does, it rips you right back to nothing. So that then gave me an opportunity to rebuild myself into something a little bit better than what I was before. So I'm so much more compassionate, empathetic, and understanding of other people and their problems than I ever was. So am I grateful for my mental illness? I'm a better bloke? Absolutely. And it's something I'd never change for anything. So you know, I I quite often tell the people, there's some things in life that are just so tragic, there's simply nothing you can find to be grateful for. But... For most of the adversity and challenges you're facing in your life, if you be objective and look back on it honestly, you can always find things to be grateful for for those experiences. So gratitude was a massive thing. Once my eyes were opened up to gratitude by Shannon, I actually started doing gratitude exercise where before I went to sleep every night, I'd write down three things that I was grateful for for the day that I've just had. Not biggies, just little things. And I found that I just started sleeping better when I did that because instead of thinking about all the crappy stuff that had happened in the day or what was waiting for me tomorrow was more thinking positive stuff that had happened um so i started sleeping better but but by this is a thing with with all these these actions is that the commitment to action that's that's really really important over a period of time it's like by doing it every night for a number of weeks the amazing thing was i was actually starting to train my brain to pick up on these nice things when they happen and actually appreciate them more so for instance if someone let me in, the, in, in in traffic, if I put my blinker on to change lanes and they let me in, that's courteous and it's something I really appreciate now. But back then, those sorts of things used to go through the wicket keeper and I'd miss it. But because I was practicing gratitude on uh, every night, I was actually training my brain to pick up on these nice things. And, you know, some of the things that or most of the stuff that a lot of us will focus on at the end of the day is all the things that went wrong. But if you can train your brain to pick up on all the nice things as well, it sort of balances it out a little bit, and it's really, really good for your well-being. So, I'm a big advocate of, of gratitude now too. Am I grateful for having a mentor on us? Yeah, I am, absolutely.
0: Listening. If there's been anything in this podcast that you've found distressing, don't forget to talk to your usual support person or call Lifeline on 131114. And if you'd like to hear more in the Being Well podcast series, you can find it on the Black Dog Institute website.